historical theology, church history, just a whole bunch of different elements of, of a presentation. But he defined scripture alone did not mean that no other teachings were valid or helpful or influential. It meant that scripture alone had the highest and final authority over what they believed and practiced. Um, gentleman by the name of James White, very helpful scholar, says, Scripture alone does not mean that God zoomed by planet Earth, dropped off the Scriptures, and left us on our own. Sola Scriptura is not meant to suggest that there is no church or that there is no spirit or that Scripture outside of the church and apart from the spirit is God's only means of leading his people. So Scripture Alone, sola scriptura does not mean scripture in isolation. The church has never understood that the only source of revelation, the only source of good teaching, the only source of helpful, godly teaching comes from scripture alone. The churches really never believe that. What we're getting at here is the issue of authority. What has the final say for the most essential elements of Christian doctrine? What is the measuring rod? What do you default to as, okay, here is the rule book, as it were. That is the principle of sola scriptura. And I bring that up because if you speak to particularly somebody, a uh, 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 Roman Catholic theologian, they would point that out. And they would say, well, for example, the book of John tells us that Jesus did many things that are not recorded in the scriptures. So they would say, well, does that scripture limits just some activities of Jesus or just some activities of of some some of his teachings? Um, is that kind of, you know, raising one of them more important than the other? And no, the answer to that would be scripture is not the only scripture has not been the only source of revelation from God to his people. Um, um, second point there, sola scriptura is not a historical invention. What do I mean by that? Um, Luther didn't invent sola scriptura. Um, Zwingli, Calvin, the guys after and before Luther didn't just sit in a, in, in a, in a you know, in his <laughs> talks about being a theology teacher and going to seminary and losing your spirituality. Uh, I laugh because I've seen that happen. Um, but uh, was, they didn't create this. They didn't go into an office and then develop this idea of sola scriptura. This had been something that the church from its very, very origins had believed. So you have a list of uh, men, um, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, Athanasius, Augustine, all people, all authoritative figures that the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, we uh, as Protestants look to them as our church fathers, as the early, early, early um, uh, partakers of the faith. And what I want to do is just read you a couple of their quotes. And you have those dates there. So just, just to give you an idea of how, how, um, how far removed we are from Scripture, um, the Apostle John uh, wrote the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. When did he write that book? Well, anywhere from 94 to 96 AD. So look at the date of Justin Martyr. Look at how this is when he died. Um, I don't know when he wrote this quote I'm about to give you, but so very early on um, into the life of the church, Mr. Justin says the following. For I understand 
uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Pay attention, therefore, to what I shall record out of the Holy Scriptures, which do not need to be expounded, but only listened to. It says 151 A.D., and, and notice what's being taught there. Notice what, what's being implied there. Not really implied. It's pretty explicit. That the source of authority is not him. And that the source of authority, the scriptures, needs not to be expounded on or changed. It needs to be listened to. Mr. Irenaeus says the following. We have learned from none other the plan of our salvation. We have learned from none other the plan of our salvation then from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. That's about 200 AD. I've got a couple more. This is Mr. Origen. He says, and now what we have drawn from the authority of Scripture ought to be sufficient to refute the arguments of heretics. I found that quote really helpful and really informative. What do you do when somebody comes to you with a teaching that you find odd or weird or different or new? What do you test that teaching against? The word. So Mr. Origen believed that. That was his measuring rod. Mr. Origen said, and now what we have drawn from the authority of scriptures ought to be sufficient to refute the arguments of heretics. Uh, Mr. Athanasius, uh, around 373 A.D., said... The knowledge of our religion and of the truth of things is independently manifest rather than in need of human teachers. I'll say that again. The knowledge of our religion and of the truth of things is independently manifest rather than in need of human teachers. He goes on to say, you are to find it out from the divine oracles for although the sacred uh, for, for the sacred and inspired scriptures are sufficient to declare truth. Uh, and then let me read you a couple quotes from Augustine. Uh, Augustine was an early church leader in the 5th century, died about 430 AD. Um, in really influential man. Um, uh, most of the Reformed uh, um, theology, most of Reformed theology has its origin in the thoughts of Augustine. Um, And this is what he said. He said, I do not want you to depend on my authority. So as to think that you must believe something because it is said by me. You should rest your belief on the canonical scriptures. If you do not see how true something is or on the truth made manifest to you interiorly so that you may see clearly. And one more. He says, um, now he's about to quote. Uh, a man that came before him, he says, you do not put the same faith in me as you do in Ambrose from from whose books I have drawn this weighty testimony. Or if you do think that we are in need, we are both to be weighed in the same balance. Of course, you will not compare us in any way with the gospel 
or put our writings on the same footing with the canonical scriptures. So from the very, very, very early days of the church, the, the men we esteem as the church fathers, the men we esteem as the guys who, who continued the work of God through the world and who became those first elders and those first teachers of Scripture, who gave us uh, uh, the foundations for the development of, of, of the rich, reformed theological system that we believe in here, you've just heard them speak. And they don't sound like men who are saying... You know what? Scripture is cool, but you should listen to me. They sound like men saying, listen to the scriptures before you listen to us. Authority is in the scriptures, not in us. And um, that last quote I gave you is 430 A.D. So a thousand years after that, more than a thousand years after that, we get the Protestant Reformation. So, so sola scriptura is not something that was invented in the 1500s or the 1600s or the 1700s. It, it wasn't the result of a rebellion and, okay, how can we really kind of wave our fist to the man? Oh, I know. Let's come up with this, this fancy kind of really rebellious, uh, fist-waving theological system called sola scriptura, and that'll grant us kind of, you know, the intellectual framework to be rebellious, right? No. This had been the testimony from... Faithful men for many, many, many years. Uh, Sola Scriptura is not the Encyclopedia Britannica. What do I mean by that? Well, Sola Scriptura does not mean that all truth is found in the Bible. I'll say that again. Sola Scriptura does not teach that all truth is found in the Bible. It doesn't even teach that all truth related to our faith and our behavior is found in the Bible. The Bible. If you should a Christian go to college or not? Should a Christian family raise their children um, homeschool or send them off to school? Should um, a Christian marry young or should they wait till they're mature and marry when they're in their 20s or 30s? Um, these are all valid questions, right? These are all questions that we go to the scriptures to 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 attain from them wisdom. But but Scripture doesn't speak specifically to those ideas. I call that principle um, the, 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 the principle of being biblical Christians as opposed to Bible verse Christians. Bible verse Christians are those Christians who, who want, have a thought, have an idea, and then they go to the Bible to find a verse to support their idea. And if there's a thought that you know, they can't find a Bible verse for, they just hope that no one else notices that that Bible verse isn't there, and then just continue selling it with the other ones. So biblical Christianity, or the, the idea of sola scriptura, teaches that all truth necessary for salvation, faith, and life, listen to this, is clearly, adequately, fully, and comprehensively found in the pages of, of the Bible. What does that mean? It means that Christians, from the simplest, Simplest minded brothers, guys like me, just regular people, from the simple minded of brothers to the wisest and most educated of sisters can find the authoritative and simple message of the gospel and understand it. Luther did not need that doctor of theology which he earned to understand the scriptures. Neither do you. The idea of Sola Scriptura is you will find in this book 
a clear and bold and understandable message relating to salvation that is complete and that contains all that is necessary for you to be saved insofar as what the message of salvation should be. Um, the, 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 the reformers, um, the idea of sola scriptura, again, is one of authority, is, is where does the authority lie? And there was this phrase that was, that um, I'm not sure who started using it first, but uh, norma normans non normata. Uh, norma normans non normata. Um, I've got three little kids and, and we read Dr. Seuss. And I, I, I promise you I wasn't reading Dr. Seuss when I, when I wrote, wrote that down. Norma normans non normata. Translate to the norm of norms, which cannot be normed. So basically authoritative rule book. This is, this is the, the measuring rod that everything goes to it and changes, not it, but itself, based on how it compares to, to what it says. Um, but what it doesn't mean is that, I, 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 I said it earlier, that scripture is the only helpful source of faith, a source of religious uh, uh, information and doctrine. We can learn from tradition, but the Bible stands as the ultimate authority. Let, let me insert this one thought in here. Did you hear in the video how um, uh, Luther's uh, storm episode and how he went up to the top of the hill and uh, uh, he prayed to St. Anne and um, Dr. Nichols, uh, you know, brought out the fact that, he, that she was the, 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 the uh, um, uh, yes, the, patron sin of minors but have you wondered why why that impulse like why the impulse of of praying to her well some of it has to do with the development of of prayer and the tradition of prayer and how to pray and who to pray to and why to pray to that person um, so, and and uh, j- just mind you, part of the development of church history and church tradition is very nebulous. There's no like exact dates on things when somebody says, we will now start doing things this way. Um, but close to somewhere in the thir- 350s when Constantine becomes emperor and, and makes Christianity, I-, I think really that's the time period that things really begin to change for the worse. When, when before that, the Christian church had, had experienced only persecution, only, uh, uh, so the, the, blood, the bloodline, as it were, of the church was pure. Everyone who was a Christian was a Christian. Everyone who, who you believed this and the possibility of that was death, there was a lot of the kind of the flaky, kind of like the wishy-washy that would denounce Christianity. So the first 300 years of church history, 300 and 350 years of church history, if you belong to the body of Christ, you, you, you were kind of a pure blood, as it were. Constantine takes power and makes Christianity legal. And he has this really bizarre conversion story, which I'm not going to get into. But now Christianity is accepted and protected but there's something interesting about this guy. He, he still continues a lot of his pagan practices. So during his time is when we see kind of the, the, the growth of, of um, cathedrals look the way they do today. They're so flamboyant and all that type of stuff. Part of his influence on, on, uh, um, on how he wanted buildings to look. Uh, and, and so a lot of the pagan practices of this man and a lot of the pagan practices of people who practiced other religions and then just kind of, okay, 
Christianity is the law of the land, so I guess I got to take that and mix it with what I already have. That leads to this development, and that leads to this thought. At some point in church history, Christians, people get this odd thought that Jesus Christ is holy and pure and blameless. Now, why is that odd? Is that not true, Ronald? Of course that's true. Here's the odd part of that thought. Because he is holy, because he is pure, and because he is blameless, he cannot be approached. So, if we are to pray to him, he's not going to listen to us. Because he is holy, because he is pure, and because he is blameless. Hmm. So what do you need then to approach God, to approach Jesus? You need an intercessor. You need someone to take your prayers to Jesus. And who better to do that than his mama? I mean, you know, if you want, if you want anybody to hear you, you go to their mama and their mama is going to put them in their place, right? So this thought just, hey, let's pray to Jesus's mother. And she will collect the prayer of the saints and then take them to her son and there will be welcome. Well, that thought continues over the years. But gosh, you know, something else happens. Another thought just kind of awakens. Wait a minute. Mary was a virgin, wasn't she? And scriptures talk about her being uh, um, holy among all women for all time. Right. So. So she's also holy and she's also blameless and she's also pure. So if we can't approach Jesus because he's holy, he's blameless and he's pure, then how can we approach Jesus's mother if she's holy and she's blameless and she's pure? Now you notice I haven't told you where this comes from the Bible, right? Well, that idea continued. So then the idea came out that in the same way that we need an intercessor, an intercessor for Jesus, we need an intercessor for Jesus's mother, Mary. So this, this kind of folklore begins to develop on, on these patron saints. And St. Anne happens to be that intercessor for minor. So that was the impulse that led him to go to that saint rather than another saint. Now, why am I saying that? Why am I bringing out that illustration? Because that was a product of tradition. It was tradition that produced that thought, untested tradition, unpurified tradition. Now, not all tradition is bad. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that all tradition is bad. You have a list of some incredible documents that I would encourage you to read. I would encourage you to find them online. Um, and um, they're written, they sp- there's so many more. <laughs> Uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Confession of Faith, the Accept of Principles from Southern Baptist Seminary, uh, and the Lakeview Christian Center Statement of Faith. Okay, These are all theological, doctrinal documents that teach orthodox, sound Bible. But these are not the Word of God. They're not as authoritative as the word of God. Throughout Catholic uh, um, history, the, 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 the thought came that um, th- they work under this theological framework that the Bible is a product of the church. So the church came first 
And once the church is born from the church, then comes the word of God, then comes the Bible. So the church, and by church I mean church leaders, magisterium, the pope, they would have, um, I don't want to use the word power, but I can't find another word. They, they would have power of interpretation, that the meaning of a text of scripture is, is contained within that power of that group because the, 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 the Bible came from the church. That's what they would believe. We would not believe that. Um, and that would some, that's, some, that's also something that would rest on the arm of tradition. Not knocking tradition, but um, um, norma normans no normata. Scripture, the book that you're holding in your hands that hopefully you bring every single Sunday, that is the measuring rod. All these documents have that book as their source. And all these documents at any given point can be changed and should be changed if something that they teach is different than from that, than what's contained in the Bible. Now, we've talked about history, we've talked about people and all that kind of stuff and, and, and um, creeds and all that kind of, but where is this in the Bible? Where, where does Sola Scriptura, where do you find this in the Bible? Um, brief Old Testament passage, it kind of gives some of this. Deuteronomy 31, 9 and 12, and Deuteronomy 32, 46 through 47. Two fascinating passages, because this is at the very, very beginning of God, of God creating his holy people, calling out his people. He's identified a nation whom he's going to reveal himself to. So now through Moses, the scriptures are being given to people. And notice what the word of God says. Deuteronomy 32, 46 says, and he, Moses, said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. If you know anything about where we are in Deuteronomy, this is Moses' last words. The next chapter, he, he's, he, he dies. So this is the last kind of uh, a message, not the, not, not, not the last kind of, the last message that Moses gives to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 31, a chapter earlier. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within their towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Some basic implications from this passage are the word of which Moses spoke was written. The people could and must listen to it to learn from it. Did you notice that? That learning came from what? From listening and listening to what? To the word being read. Just the act of reading the word, God intended that for his word to communicate to people. 
and this word they found life. And the most important implication of that passage is they needed no additional institution to interpret the word. They had this incredible system of priests and, 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 and leaders that God ordained, that God demanded, that God expected his people to observe. But all throughout the Old Testament, there's this principle that the word of the Lord itself has the power and the clarity to teach people the message of God contained in this word. We do not need somebody to stand in front of us to translate or interpret the word of God. God speaks clearly to us. So, the need of sola scripture in our day. That's a wonderful history lesson, Ronald. It was great. I really disliked history, and maybe I like it a little bit, you're saying now. Or maybe you still dislike history. Um, Why does this matter? Let me give you just two recent um, uh, uh, context that I've encountered where, where I see this principle of continuing the idea of solo scriptura in our day. Mommies and daddies and the birds and the bees. Um, that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, if you don't know what the birds and the bees are, um, Frank's sitting over here. He can give you a guided tour. Um, what I'm about to quote to you, to quote to you is um, some texts from a book by Dr. Jennifer Knust, who's the Associate Professor of New Testament and Christian Origins at Boston University. This is a highly, highly educated woman. She'll mop the floor with me. Incredibly gifted woman. Teaches at Boston University and wrote a book called, this is the name of the book, Unprotected Texts. It's a, it's a play on words for what the book is about. And she's basically trying to give the real uh, uh, biblical teaching on sexuality. And she writes, let me be clear. I do think we can learn moral principles from and with the Christian scriptures. That's how I've always learned them. But I do not think it is scripture alone that teaches moral principles to us. Okay, that's that seems... Okay, there's nothing really controversial about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. She goes on to say, we are not passive recipients of what the Bible says, but active interpreters who make decisions about what we believe and what we will affirm. Translation, we tell the Bible what it says. I'll read it again. We are not passive recipients of what the Bible says, but active interpreters who make decisions about what we believe and what we will affirm. Admitting that we have wishes and that our wishes matter is therefore the first step to developing an honest and faithful interpretation. Dr. Knust came to New Orleans Seminary for an event called Greer Heard Point, Point Counterpoint. And she debated an a, um, evangelical scholar by the name of Dr. Ben Witherington. And the whole debate was Bible's, the Bible's true teaching on sexuality. So she, she obviously leaned on the idea that the Bible does not condemn uh, um, uh, uh, sex outside marriage, sex, same-sex marriage. And she was making that argument biblically. And the crux of her argument, the whole point of her argument was this. The Bible is an old book. That was written for an old culture. And we as modern people. Because of the culture around us. Have the responsibility. To determine its interpretation. Okay. Now Ben Witherington just took her to task. But it's a very very interesting. Very interesting. By the way. Most if not all of theological liberalism. 
most of theological liberalism, that's the leg that they stand on. That, that, that's the, 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 that's what, what girds their doctrine. How do we go around those hard texts, they say? Well, we make them not hard, and we interpret for them as opposed to letting them speak. Um, last week, uh, um, uh, I, I listened to a, a daily uh, podcast by Dr. Albert Moeller. He's a president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's called The Briefing. And I came across this really interesting um, um, uh, bit in his podcast, The Death of the Death Penalty. I'm, 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 I'm going to read uh, what the Catholic Magazine of America um, kind of brings out and then some of his analysis. But it says, in the, in the Catholic magazine America, Gerald O'Connell writes, Pope Francis declared today that the death penalty is contrary to the gospel. Let me just insert this thought. The, the point of what I'm about to share is not to promote or excuse the, the death penalty. We're, we're sola scriptura, okay? So if you have really strong feelings about the death penalty, come talk to me later. But I'm not, this is not about the death penalty. Just notice how sola scriptura speaks to what the Pope did last week. Last week, okay, last week, not a year ago, not t- last week, he said that however grave the crime that may be committed, the death penalty is inadmissible because it attacks the inviolability and the dignity of the person. The Pope then said, it's not sufficient to find a new language to announce the faith of always. It is necessary and urgent that Faced with the new challenges and the new horizons that are open for humanity, the church can express the new things of the gospel of Christ that, while enclosed in the word of God, have not yet come to light. Do you hear what's being said there? Okay. This is Dr. Albert Moeller's explanation. Moeller says, if you want to understand the Reformation, in a nutshell, there it is. The Reformation comes down to the question as to whether or not there are doctrines and major theological understandings that should be seen in Scripture but aren't there. But the Roman Catholic magisterium claims the right to see and then to develop as official doctrine. Let's understand what the Pope is saying here. He is saying, consistent with the theological authority the Roman Catholic Church has claimed for years, that the magisterium of the church, headed by the Pope, has the right to develop doctrine that clearly isn't found in Scripture. Instead, they hold to two different sources of revelation. One being the Scriptures, the Word of God. The second being the tradition of the church under the supervision and the leadership under the guardianship of the magisterium of the church with the Pope at the top. So that right there is a crystallization of sola scriptura. That we believe that there is no individual who has this unilateral unilateral authority to invent or create doctrine where doctrine is not to be found. Let me just take uh, one or two more minutes to point you to a couple books and then read you uh, a page of this incredible book. Um, If you want to learn more about the Reformation, about what we're talking, this is the best book I've come across. Um, It's called The Unquenchable uh, Unquenchable Flame. 
uh, by Michael Reeves. Why do I love this book? Because it's short and it's not boring. That's why I love this book. It's short. It's a little bitty book. You can, you know, two days and you're, you're done with it. And it's really, really, really fascinating. It's fast moving. It's really well written. It's exciting. Um, Sola Scriptura uh, by a whole bunch of authors. I'm going to have these up here and you can come read them. But let me, let me take you back several hundreds of years ago and just kind of um, give you a picture of what our brother Martin might have experienced. So I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes, but maybe, maybe this, this would help you. The trumpets blared as the covered wagon passed through the city gate. Thousands lined the streets to catch a glimpse of their hero, many more waving pictures of him from windows and rooftops. It was the evening of Wednesday 16th, April 1521, and Martin Luther was entering the city of Worms. It looked like a triumphal entry, yet Luther knew where triumphal entries could lead. The reality was he was coming to be tried for his life, and like Jesus, he was expecting death. Teaching that a sinner merely by trusting Christ could, despite all his or her sins, have utter confidence before God. He had brought down on himself the fury of the church. His books had already been thrown onto bonfires and most expected in the few days that he would be joining them. Luther, however, was determined to defend his teaching. Christ lives, he said, and we shall enter Worms in spite of all the gates of hell. The next day, the imperial herald came to Luther's lodging to escort him to the trial. The crowds were so dense that he was forced to sneak Luther through some back alleys to the bishop's palace. Even so, they didn't go unnoticed. Many scrambling over the rooftops in their eagerness to see their hero. At four in the afternoon, Luther entered the hall. And for the first time, the minor son from Saxony, dressed in his humble monk's habit, faced Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, Lord of Spain, Austria, Burgundy, Southern and Northern Italy, the Netherlands, and God's Viceroy on earth. On seeing the monk, the emperor, a fierce defender of the church mumbled, he will not make a heretic out of me. Luther was ordered not to speak until bidden. Then the emperor's spokesman, pointing at a pile of Luther's books on a table in front of him, told him that he had been summoned to see whether he would acknowledge the books that had been published in his name, and if so, whether he would recant. In a soft voice that, that, that people strained to hear, Luther admitted that the books were his. But then, to the shock of all, he asked for more time to decide whether he needed to recant. It looked like he was going to back down. In fact, Luther had been expecting to deal with specific things he had taught. He had not anticipated that he might be asked to reject everything he had ever written. That needed further consideration. He was grudgingly given one day to reflect, and after that, he was warned he should expect the worst if he didn't repent. The following day, it was six in the evening before Luther was readmitted into the emperor's presence. The hall was packed, and the gathering gloom torches had been lit, making it stiflingly hot. As a result, Luther was perspiring heavily. Looking at him, everyone expected an abject apology as he begged forgiveness for his heinous heresy. But the moment he opened his mouth... It was clear that was not to be. 
This time, he spoke in a loud and ringing voice. He announced that he would not retract his attacks upon false teaching, for that would give even more reign to those who would thus destroy Christianity. Good God, what sort of tool of evil and tyranny I then would be? Despite an angry shout of no from the emperor, Luther went on, demanding that if he be wrong, he be refuted with scripture. Then, he promised, he would be the first to burn his books. For the last time, he asked if he would retract his errors, and then he concluded, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. And let that be said of all of us. Let me pray for us as we're dismissed. Father, thank you for the legacy of men like Luther, for the many faithful believers that came before him who preserved your word, who stood on your word, and who gave their very lives that we would have your word. Oh, Lord, help us be Christians that know your word and do what your word says. Guide us now, O oh Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.